Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Metadata. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 195 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we debated whether drones were ready to play a role in the legal profession. Unfortunately, once again, Tom won the debate for now. We'll I don't have to know check about back that. We'll see. And see how I did in a few years when I'm probably more right than Tom was. In this episode, we get back to reality, and that's virtual and augmented reality, and look at some of the recent developments and announcements in the world of VR and AR, and whether VR and AR might have gotten our attention at this point. Tom, what's all on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mall Report, we will indeed be talking about virtual reality and augmented reality, and whether it's time for uh, our listeners to dive in. Uh, in our second segment, we have another question from one of our listeners. Keep those questions coming in. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But first up, VR and AR, or uh, virtual reality and augmented reality, along with artificial intelligence, VR and AR are, I think, the hot topics in technology today. Unlike artificial intelligence. Uh, these are actually some technologies that average consumers like you and me and us can check out without completely breaking the bank. Uh, Dennis, uh, once again, I will put the job of defining our terms on you. What actually got you interested in talking about this topic? And uh, what do we mean? What do, what do we mean when we talk about VR and AR? Well, I was listening to the Too Embarrassed to Ask podcast, and they did an episode on VR and AR, and it was just uh, striking to me. So I, uh, and I started to really think about VR and AR in, in some new ways, and and there's also been a number of developments that they talked about, and some uh, you know some other things out there, Microsoft Hololens, Oculus, um, other things like that that we'll we'll talk about later. So when I was thinking today how I wanted to define the terms, I, I started to think that there's this sort of general notion of immersive display that I think was helpful for me to think about virtual reality. So you can think of immersive displays ranging from the IMAX theater at the at the big end to personal displays that so something that would actually sit on your face that you you look into. So it could be the the Google Glass, it could be the the Google Cardboard uh, VR thing could be something where you just have a VR mask that you, you look at. And I think there's a range of these things. And, and so I started to think of it in terms of are you looking through the device to see what's going on in the outside world? Or are you looking at something that blocks you off from the outside world? And so virtual reality, to me, it's that sort of contained field of viewing. So you are kind of separated from what you might see in the outside world. So it's kind of a, this closed system or a, a closed mask that you view through. Then 
then I think the other end, you have what I would think of as the heads-up display, where it could be something like in a, a car windshield, the Google Glass sort of thing, where you say, I'm looking through something, I see all of the outside world, but there are other things happening that I can see that are sort of overlaid onto my view of the real world. And so I think that's the other end. Then there's a kind of continuum between them. And then when I think about augmented reality, I see now that can take place in any of those areas. And so I see augmented reality as saying that there is information that's being pulled or displayed to me in those contexts that is contextual, uh, that provides information. So I could maybe look at a, I'm a tourist, I look at a tourist site and I get information about what it is I'm looking at. So I'm an art museum, I see, I get information about the painting I'm looking at on the, the glasses that I'm looking through. And so that augmented reality is that providing that extra information that could be in the form of a, you know, a, a data stream, you know, telling you maybe information about health or what you've done or time or anything like that, or uh, information about something that you're you're looking at. So I don't know, Tom. That's that's sort of how I look at VR and AR and in that context of what I call a very immersive display, as opposed to the sort of the monitor or the screen view that that we uh, most of the time have been thinking about in terms of uh, computer display. Well, I think that's a good I think that's a good introduction to kind of what we're talking about by the two different types of reality that we're going to be discussing. Um, maybe it's time to start talking about the equipment that people use to use virtual reality or augmented reality apps or other tools that are out there. I think that the well, I, I would say that virtual reality tools have been out there for longer, but I don't know that that's true. I think that augmented reality tools have been there for some time. Google was putting tools out there where you could point your camera down the road and it would show you sights on the street through your camera lens that you couldn't see otherwise. It would point out features that it recognized and would tell you more about that or you could click for more information. But, you know, in, in sort of in my memory, the virtual reality devices have kind of at least taken center stage more recently. I think you described sort of the the major heavy hitters when it comes to, to the virtual reality devices. I think that the one that gets probably the best, uh, the most press, the most news is the Oculus Rift. That's a kind of a dedicated VR device. Um, there are a couple of others. The Vive, I think that's an HTC device. I can't remember, or is it LG? I can't remember who does that, but the Vive is one. But really, the Oculus Rift is the one that people may have heard of before, uh, mostly because Facebook bought it. Uh, you know, it got popular enough, and so Facebook bought it. I think that Going the pure virtual reality route can actually be sort of expensive if you want to use it for what it was really intended for. You know, the Oculus Rift, I think, used to cost, Dennis, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it used to cost north of $800. It was an expensive device. And and the price today, if you go and look on their website, it's at $399, so it's a lot cheaper than before. Still kind of a pricey tool, but here's the deal about VR tools like this. You can't use a tool like the Rift without a laptop or a desktop PC that's strong enough to support it. These tools are awesome, and you can do lots of gaming and really interesting things with it, but you've got to have a computer that's attached to it. And some people have tried to create kind of backpack computers so you can walk around with it. Uh, but, you know, I think that there's only one thing worse than walking around with goggles where you can't see anything and you just, no one can see your eyes, but it's having a backpack with the computer on it while you walk 
around with goggles on the front of your face. It just seems so clunky and cumbersome to me. And frankly, to get something strong enough, those computers are going to cost you more than $2,000. So I think that these types of VR devices, the Rift and some of these others, are, are best for the gamers. I, I really don't think that that makes sense for the casual consumer like you, like me, at least not right now at that particular price point. So really where I think these tools are going are to the personal level, the smartphone viewing, um, you know, with Google Cardboard and some of these others, which I really think is it's both virtual and augmented reality from your smartphone. Dennis, I know you may have tried some of those out. Do you want to maybe talk about that uh, at this point? Yeah, so uh, not to date myself, but uh, so Google Cardboard is is known because it was like a simple holder for a smartphone that was made out of cardboard and you sort of folded it up and you look through it and it held your phone and you were able to take advantage of virtual reality as you look through it. And then there are sort of other inexpensive devices that operate on the same principle. So it's a, it's like a, you know, something that will fit over your eyes, like a mask, like a, not exactly like a scuba mask, but basically like some goggles and then you're, you kind of slot your phone into it. And so I was using one today that was a set of VR glasses that was given away for free at ABA Tech Show. And so if not to date myself too much, but if you remember back to the days of the old uh, Viewmasters, which uh, allowed you to... I love the Viewmasters. Which allowed you to look at, you know, uh, either animation scenes sometimes those are sort of like cartoon scenes or nature scenes or travel scenes and when you look through the viewmaster because there are two images that you look through then you're able to have this 3d effect and so i'll go you i'll go you one better real quick my favorite tech toy growing up when i was a little kid was my grandmother's stereo opticon which was the first Viewmaster that ever came out back in the early, what is it, 1920s or 1930s, where you put these maybe really... Maybe even cool, earlier than yeah, that. Maybe yeah. earlier than that. And that was such a cool thing. And it did kind of the same thing as a Viewmaster. I just remembered that. I love that thing. Yeah, so, so I had the same feeling here that it was like, oh, wow, this is like, video version of the Viewmaster. So it's a sort of low-tech, in a way, thing, uh, but it gives you the experience, and and the experience for, for me was very good, I, although I, I do have one caveat about that that I, I'll probably talk about a little bit later, uh, the, uh, especially if you don't have great eyesight. There can be an, an issue there. So I think you had this super low-cost, uh, kind of lo-fi maker sort of notion of like, here's a way to get virtual reality. And there are a number of number of apps, because the apps are very important, obviously, because you want some VR apps. And so I was experimenting today in preparation for the show with, uh, with the New York Times VR app. So there are a number of things out there, and, and there are roller coaster apps and, and other things like that. So you can experiment. So there, there is, as Tom says, there's this notion of the high-end gamer, extremely powerful, you know, sort of super immersive experience of, of VR, which is probably all in is going to cost you several thousand dollars, uh, which, you know, if you're doing a high-end entertainment system, you're probably in the, in the same budget area. So it 
it could be interesting in that sense uh, for you. And then there's like this super low end where you go, hey, this is just good enough. And if I can get a, you know, a set of, of goggles that, uh, you know, work well for me and I can see well enough, I have some example apps and I can get the experience. And so, Tom, I'm guessing, I mean, that's where I'm at is the entry point clearly to to experiment uh, and I'm, I'm guessing although you some I think you have a like a bigger technology budget than I have lately but I, I think you're probably at the at the low end too right now I am at the low end I started using I didn't use the actual cardboard version of Google cardboard I, I, I was a little bit late to, I wasn't kind of an immediate adopter when cardboard came out but cardboard was really cool because it was what just 25 30 bucks and it was it was easy and it had a nice pair of lenses in it and it wasn't perfect but it was enough to kind of give you a taste of that experience right after cardboard came out there were a number of companies that used the cardboard technology to create their own cardboard compatible headsets that actually had straps on it. The re- regular cardboard doesn't really have a strap, and there's, there's a reason for that, but I, um, it doesn't didn't have a strap on it. Uh, the one that I w- bought was about $25 or $30, had a strap. Uh, the real problem, and I think you alluded to this before, but I'm going to jump the gun and talk about it a little bit, is, is that these are not really made. Th- those types of devices are not really made if you wear glasses. If you wear contact lenses, fine to use, but I couldn't wear my glasses, and if I took my glasses off, I really couldn't see well enough. It just wasn't strong. My eyes are not good enough to be able to see without my glasses. However, when I got my Pixel phone last year, which, by the way, I still love, still one of the best phones I've ever owned, I got free as part of that, I guess promotionally, I got one of the Google Daydream headsets, which uh, aren't terribly expensive. They're $79, but they're still more expensive than the cardboard. And that is actually a pretty nice little device. And it is big enough so that I can wear my glasses with it. I will say it's not the most comfortable experience with the glasses. It kind of feels like it's weighing my head down. And that's the main drawback for me for using one of these tools is that I would spend a whole lot more time doing it if it felt comfortable on my head wearing with my glasses. So that's the only the only issue that I have. I will say some of my favorite apps that I was able to download, I down, Google's Arts and Culture app is great. You can look at you can go and look at artwork all over the world and get educated on it and they'll talk to you about it. You can watch Netflix or Hulu so you can have your own little private movie theater and watch movies there. Um, but frankly, personally, my favorite my favorite app that I use with my Google Daydream is Google Photos. Because when I am out, when I was on vacation, on multiple vacations, you can, with an Android phone, take a panoramic picture. Not just a panoramic picture, but a 360 picture. So I can just turn around in a full circle. And uh, that's made for virtual reality. So I can go and I can immerse myself in places where I went on vacation and just turn around and around and around and I'm right there standing in the middle of it again and it is just such a cool experience. I I think for me that's what the whole immersive thing is nice is that I'm not just forced to look at what's in front of me. I can look around. I can look up. I can look behind me. And it's always different. And it's a little bit um, uh, disorienting. I mean, I can get a little bit uh, not dizzy, although they say you can get dizzy if you use it for too long. Um, But um, I just, I think it's a, a great experience. And at that $79 price point with some of these apps, I kind of think it's a no brainer to not try it. 
Yeah, there are, you know, when you mentioned that, there are these little odd feelings that you get. So today, I like the fact that I could look up and see the sky and the clouds. But when I looked down, like straight down in front of me, I couldn't see my toes and my feet. And that was like a kind of an odd feeling. (laughs) When you stretch your arm out in front of you, you can't see it either, can you? So I want to I want to talk more about Google Daydream because that's what really got me going on this. But I want to I thought it was worth talking about the return of Google Glass. So Google Glass came out. There were these glasses. There's a lot of hype about it. They kind of really flamed out. And then recently, Google Glass 2.0 came out. And I think in a way that really makes sense. And so it seems like what they did was they looked and said, what are places where people are already you know, wearing glasses and looking at screens and just need extra information. It's sort of like in the manufacturing setting and factories and other places like that, perhaps in medical. And so I think that the Google Glass is, is now being focused in, in those areas. And that's kind of interesting to me because this is sort of the flip side of VR because you are seeing what's going on, but you're also having other information uh, visible to you and and fed to you at this at the same time. So I think that's an, an interesting thing, but probably becomes a specialized thing. So I guess all the concerns we had about Google Glass and people videoing you all the time and people just looking weird uh, in those glasses, which tended to be a little little buggy and then became the subject of jokes, uh, now may find a niche that really makes sense. But I did want to talk about Google Daydream. So wait, hold on. Talk- wait, wait, wait. Before you do that, let me, oh. let, me, let me get my piece in about Google Glass so we can get it all out of the way at once. Okay. Um, so just really quick, for the people who are listening who may not know, Google Glass came out a number of years ago. It was designed as a side piece for your glasses or for a pair of glasses that provided an augmented reality dashboard for you. You could um, videotape things, but you could also, as you're walking down the street, you could get directions on your map. If a message came in, you could read the message. um, And it was all right in front of you on the screen that was being projected by something that was connected to a pair of glasses. Again, like the people who who had Google Glass thought of themselves as glastronauts, but uh, everybody who watched people with Google Glass called them glass holes. So uh, uh, it uh, it was an interesting thing. People looked awkward. People didn't like being videoed because there was no way to know if you were being videoed. I don't think that Google Glass ever really went away. I think that Google pivoted and started quietly marketing to the markets that made sense. Um, It actually has been in quiet use in dozens of companies, such as companies like Boeing and Volkswagen are using it as Quality assurance. So Google Glass is used to provide step-by-step instructions on how to complete the manufacturing process. So everybody's following the exact same step, and you can't actually, it shows up on your screen, you can't move to the next step until you complete the first step. You can't cut over to them. And what they're showing is, uh, they've had some studies, some very preliminary ones that have come out that said that the Google Glass is resulting in a 46% decrease in the time that it takes to complete certain tasks, which I think is pretty cool. When healthcare, 
there. Some doctors are starting to use it, and they're putting it on while they do an exam, and that instead of having an intern or a resident behind them taking notes about what's going on, they're live streaming over Google Glass so that um, a scribe somewhere else is taking the notes, and they can throw up last year's x-ray or last year's health results so that the doctor can see what's going on. I think a very interesting, and, and although it may, be, it may feel a little creepy that you're live streaming your exam to someone else, it's really not a lot different than the doctor who's watching you over the other doctor's shoulder. And, and I think that it's now more accessible for people with prescription glasses, so I actually might be more interested in using it than virtual reality. And then I think that the better thing that they've done is you can disconnect it from the glasses part and attach it to safety goggles so you can get stuff done. And I know I, I, I kind of really like what they've done with it because they found their niche, but the bad part about it is I've just kind of wasted all of your time because it's really not available to the consumer market. It still costs about $1,500, but they're really going all in on the enterprise. Um, and I'm glad it found its place, um, but the place apparently wasn't with the consumer. You know, and and I so here's the story for you. So the other day I was uh, replacing a component of a toilet, and I was thinking this would be so great for like Google Glass or augmented reality, which could tell me like, oh, here's what the next step is, or more importantly, have like a red flashing light that says, hey, you have this piece upside down, you know, um, and so I wouldn't do trial and error. So that, so I I, I see the the use of augmented uh, reality in in a number of ways where you're looking through and you're just getting that that sort of information that you might need. So Tom, you've actually you were talking about how Google Daydream is something that you've actually experimented with. So I want to talk about what I think are some of the implications of Google Daydream, but do you want to talk a little bit more about what it is based on your experience? Well, no, Daydream is, I mean, at its most basic, Daydream is an app that's on specified Android devices. So you can't really, I'm not sure that you can run it on an Apple on an iOS device. Can you, Dennis? I, I, I don't think you can. I don't think you can. I think it has to be right now on an, on an Android device. And I read an article today that said that Google's promising that there will be 11 Android phones next year that can run it. But unfortunately, if you're in the iPhone or Apple world, then, then you don't get to take advantage of this. But we'll talk about AR kit in just a minute. But you download the Daydream app. The Daydream app is what you need to be able to use it. You insert your phone into the Daydream goggles and the Daydream app kind of runs things and it's a nice little gallery. You look around and you've got like a nice little running water and you're kind of in a park somewhere and right in front of you are all of the different VR programs that you have installed on your phone. You've got a little remote control so you can click on things and move from one thing to the next. And then you just go into different apps and, and take a look at them. And, uh, you know, for example, if I wanted to click on Google Photos, then I could do that and it would take me to my photos and I could page through. I'd have to use the remote control by, by just kind of swiping through all the pictures that I had until I came to one that I wanted to look at. Same with the arts and culture. I could just kind of look through the different pictures and, and click on the ones I wanted to hear or learn more about. And sometimes you get some text information about it. Sometimes somebody's talking in your in your ear. You need to use your, your uh, earphones when you do this because there, there will be some sound that's related to that. Uh, is that what you mean, Dennis? Is that kind of what you're looking for? Or are you yeah. looking for something different about what... No. What no, the experience I, I, is like. No, I, I think that's what I was looking for. And so when I was listening to the podcast and they were talking about Google Daydream, 
you know, usually I think VR games, and I'm, you know, I'm just not a gamer at at this point, and so I, I kind of tune out. But they start talking about a number of of ways of using VR that really got me interested. And so what it really comes down to is to experience places that you cannot physically be. And so that was the discussion. And so they were saying, like, well, you think that you, you see books that talk like a thousand places in the world you would want to visit before you die. And you go like, well, there's no way I can do that. And there's also some places these days. I mean, let's face it, none of us are going to go to Baghdad for vacation for the foreseeable future. You know, so so you're going like, well, wouldn't it be cool to experience some of these places in virtual reality? And it's not the same, obviously, as being there, but there could be like a really great virtual reality experience of that. And then we're also talking about imagine being in a front row seat at an NBA game or at a concert and having that in virtual reality. You would have this this experience. And as they start to add things like the haptic sense of feeling and vibration and and sound and combining all the experience, you would have this this pretty cool experience. And I started to say, you know, that is something that I think I could see paying money for if, if it was done right. So I don't know, Tom, that, that kind of completely changed my feeling about VR. Did I overreact to that or does that interest you in the same way? No, it does interest me. I, I, you know, right now, no one is, there's not, as far as I can tell, been an app that will live stream an event that you can access through VR. But I would imagine that's the natural extension, but you've got to get the right equipment, put the right 360 degree cameras in there. Um, you can certainly deal with the sound the same way, but if you wanted to go to a concert or go to an event or something, there's, I think, no reason why you couldn't do that with a virtual reality tool. I think that that's kind of the natural place where this is going to go. There's still a part of it that is unreal to me. And so I'm, I'm, I still sort of want to go to all those thousand places before I die. But I really think that, I think you're right, it's having experiences that either you'd have to spend a lot of money doing or you wouldn't never be able to do is kind of the advantage of of a tool like that. Yeah, I was going to say that in the uh, on the podcast the guest of the show was uh, was talking about the experiences they've had at Google and how realistic the experiences uh, can be and and the effect that they have on people and so they gave this great example of they had an application that had people in virtual reality at a pool and you'd see a swimming pool and then there, there were diving boards and you looked up and there was like the three meter board and you looked up further and there was like the 10 meter board and then it went up and I forget it was like 50 meters like some ridiculous height and people knew it was virtual reality and it wasn't a real thing and then you were transported up to that I'll call it the 50 meter level and they said people were like crouching down you know, and the same way they would react if they were in heights, even though they, they knew it was a virtual experience. And then 
they got people to walk to the edge of the platform and said, just take a step off and go down. And they said that many people just could not bring themselves to do it, even though they knew it was clearly a virtual experience. And so so I think that, that uh, it's kind of really an interesting area for how it may change the way we experience, and I think in immersive ways, you know, entertainment and other experiences. And, and so I, I'm just really fascinated by that time. I, I, I don't know whether, like I said, I, I don't know whether I kind of went off, you know, off that platform into the deep end, it just just in my imagination, but uh, I'm just fascinated by this area. And, and I could see myself kind of bumping up from the, the cheap approach, maybe to the to the the more expensive approach a lot faster than I would have ever thought possible. Yeah, no, I think it's definitely worth trying. I think that Google, if you have an Android phone especially, Google Daydream is a really great option. Um, unfortunately, if you've got an iOS device, you don't really have a lot of options for there. Now, where iOS is making some strides that I think is really interesting is, is that with iOS 11, they're coming out with um, their own augmented reality. Rather than, uh, rather than relying on software to do it, they're basically taking advantage of the sensors and the cameras and things that are already in the phone to deal with it. I mean, they're adding new software to it, but their AR kit, uh, their augmented reality kit is something that is kind of a, a little different, a little different than what uh, Google's doing, relying on uh, relying on the hardware. Apple's relying a lot also on their software that they're putting in there too. So you're going to have to have iOS 11 to start with it. But what I find is interesting about this is, is that Already, developers are starting to come out with very useful ways to take advantage of augmented reality. One of the ones that I thought was really cool was just a simple measurement app. You point your camera at one place, you drop a pin, you point your camera at another location, you drop another pin. The phone is aware of the space because it's aware of the three-dimensional space in between everything, and it can actually measure the distance for you just by looking at it, which I just think is a cool, practical use of this technology. And and um, that's going to be something great for iOS users to take advantage of in some ways that may not kind of offer that same immersive experience that VR does, but absolutely has some practical applications that you can immediately start to use. And this will surprise you, Tom. I know that I was actually thinking that I would buy an Android phone, even though I wouldn't use it as a phone, and just just for the VR experience, because because it does seem to be over in the, the Android world where it's going to be more accessible. So I don't know, Tom. Do you want to wrap it up? This is like the first time we haven't like applied a technology back to lawyers and legal profession. And frankly, I don't care. I'm just really interested in this. I don't really care whether it has legal applications. I'm sure it does. But right now, I'm just interested in experimenting with this. Well, I think that having devices out there that may not have immediate legal applications or legal applications that we just don't want to talk about, and we just want to say let's let's enjoy this for the sake of technology. I'm always happy to have a podcast about that with you anytime you want to, Dennis. So I totally agree. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. 
And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mall Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. We've got another audience question from a listener who contacted us through LinkedIn. Uh, and, and we're encouraging people to contact us through LinkedIn because we uh, we think that's a great way to get in touch with us and just another channel that, that people can communicate with us. So, Tom, here's, here's the question. And, uh, of course, I forgot to uh, get permission from our questioner to use his or her name. So I'll follow up on that. We might give credit to that in the in the next episode. But so here's a question. I'm curious as to what your take is on social media etiquette for lawyers and their clients. So that is, what, if any, social networks are appropriate to use for communication or other purposes? Um, For example, what if your client sends you a friend request on Facebook? So I I think that that, 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 so I'm going to give the lawyer answer there and I say, I think it depends. I personally, in terms of professional uh, social networking, I would generally use LinkedIn as my only means of communicating with somebody else. And frankly, I mean, I think that it's one thing to follow somebody on Twitter or Instagram or other pages. Those seem different to me. Those seem like different tools where it might be okay to follow someone on Twitter where it's different on those others. I may be wrong about that. And I may not have the right sense of it, but it just seems a little bit of a different a different vibe following people there. I think that, and frankly, there are some courts that say it's not ethical to um, follow your clients or to follow even the judge or co-counsel. And we've I've seen many stories where someone has uh, either tried to recuse a lawyer or tried to recuse a judge or tried to get somebody disqualified from representation because of friendships on Facebook. A client who says, you friended the opposing counsel on Facebook, you can't represent me because you're friends with that person. Um, or you're with the judge or the other opposing counsel is friends with the judge on Facebook. Well, that's biased and I need a new judge. So I think that that being friends in those areas is completely different from being a connection on LinkedIn. I think having them as a connection, because the purposes of the tools are slightly different. I think, yes, legal professionals will use Facebook in a business networking way, but perception is reality, and we use Facebook for our friends. That's where our friends go, and that's where we share information with each other about things. And uh, I really think that does make a difference, which is why I generally say, you know, connect with people in work on LinkedIn. I may be a little old-fashioned about that. There may be more modern ways of thinking about that. I certainly know that there are some case law and some ethics opinions that uh, discourage the following on social media. But um, I don't know. What do you think, Dennis? Well, a couple different things. So I think that traditionally lawyers have have looked to LinkedIn as the primary social media outlet and the tool that they use. And it is the professional connection network. And they've separated, you know, Facebook for personal. And so I I think you would use the same sort of guidelines you use on anything else about uh, personal friendships, personal relationships with clients. So you may just have a a choice that you make. I I don't know that you want to have a hard and fast rule because I think if you go to, if you're doing a Facebook group or you're doing like a, a Facebook, I'll call it company page, then you're using Facebook in a different way that could have utility for clients. And it's not that pure, hey, you're a friend of mine sort of thing. Which these days with, you know, what most of the world it feels like on Facebook already that there's not 
you know the fact that you're friends on Facebook, I don't ha- think has the same uh, gives people the same sense as as it once did. So I look at those things and say, well, probably that normal approach that lawyers have had of of LinkedIn versus the others generally holds, but you can be creative. You just kind of need to think through it. The other piece of it is using these tools for communicating with clients. I just flat out wouldn't do that. I mean, I I think that I would use them for other things, but I I think you want to, you know, your ethical obligation on confidentiality is really high. And I I just, I I don't think you want to do something where it's possible to accidentally reveal client information. So it could be there. I think there's a point where you sort of convert out of social media and and for actual client communications. So that part of it, I think is, I can give a, a clearer answer. So in just sort of connecting with clients, using social media in different ways to reach clients in a public way, I think be as creative as you want, but I think in communicating confidentially, those aren't the channels that I, I would want to use. Now it's time for our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation you can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. So I actually have two parting shots. One is inspired by our first topic, and that is I'm pretty sure back when I read the book, I made a recommendation for listeners to read the book Ready Player One by Ernest Klein. Fantastic book about virtual reality, uh, but with an 80s twist with lots of 80s music and lots of 80s references. And it was such a fun, interesting, exciting book to read. I really recommend that book. Now they're coming out with a movie. You can go onto the internet and find the trailer for it. Steven Spielberg is directing the movie based on the book, and I cannot wait for that movie. So Ready Player One, The book is there now. The movie's coming out soon. Um, The website that I want to recommend today is um, a new tool. A while back, we may have talked about this in the past, a a tool called Unroll Me, a subscription service that could be used to unsubscribe you from basically anything that you had subscribed to. It kind of fell into disfavor once it was determined that it was taking your personal information and selling it to third parties. There's a new tool out there called Deceit Me, which I'm not sure what deceit means, but D-E, not deceit like deceptive, but D-E-S-E-A-T dot M-E. It's the same kind of tool. It will review the subscriptions that you have in Google. It uses the OAuth uh, authentication procedure, and really that's all that it does. It doesn't take your personal information. It uh, at least it claims that what it's doing is is that it's just you know understanding which subscriptions you want to unsubscribe from, and it gives you a platform for being able to do that. So if you've got a lot of subscriptions you want to get rid of in your email, check out Deceit Me. It's free to use, and it looks like it's a heck of a lot uh, more secure and more private than Unroll Me was. Dennis? I already mentioned my parting shot, which is the two Embarrassed to Ask podcasts. Kara Swisher and Lauren Good are the, the hosts of that. I just think it's a great tech podcast that uh, tries to answer questions that you would normally be too embarrassed to ask because you wouldn't want people to think that you don't know the answers to things. So the VR uh, AR one that I mentioned was great. Uh, there was a recent one on called What is a Blockchain that is one of the the best and you know concise plain language explanations of blockchains and cryptocurrencies that i've heard and it's one that i'm going to keep recommended to people who are as a starting point on that topic 
I have to say one of my favorite Too Embarrassed to Ask episodes was where they brought in Kara Swisher's 15-year-old son and talked to him about what teens are using and what technology tools they're using to communicate with each other these days. That was kind of an eye-opener on what's being used today. So, yes, great podcast. Totally agree. Yeah, that was a, that was a great episode. Yeah. All right, so that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mall Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site where you can find archives of all of our previous podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please reach out. Send us a message on LinkedIn. Uh, we're happy to connect with you, and we're happy to answer your questions through LinkedIn. Don't forget, there's also the Legal Talk Network hotline that you can call to leave your voice question, call 720-441-6820. If you're listening to this right now on a phone, pull out that phone and save this number, 720-441-6820. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. And you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. Help us out by telling a couple of your friends and colleagues about the podcast. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network. <laughs>